Everybody, this is Bernadette Pager with an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW streaming in the Puget Sound region and live on CHD TV, uh, streaming to the world, which is very exciting. We need a revolution, and oh boy, have we got a revolution! It, you know, it's underway. It's it's happening. I've said many times before. I I hate that this health revolution is happening because of the nonsense that COVID chaos and all the world powers and all the stuff going on. But, you know, I am a hopeless optimist um, from the ashes of disaster go the roses of success. And I do believe that when we emerge from all this, as we all figure out what's wrong, um, how to take charge, how to take back our country, our health, our systems, we are going to emerge from this better and stronger than ever. But we've got a lot of work to do. There's a lot of history we need to learn and a lot of tools we need to have. So in this first hour, we're going to be talking about about data and manipulation and how we got where we are even before COVID hit. And in the second hour, Um, I'm going to encourage you to have your tissues handy, and if you do have sensitive ears around, it might not be an episode where where somebody, um, where they might be fragile, because there's going to be descriptions of people harmed in the hospital that are very difficult to hear. So I just want to warn you that will become upcoming in the second hour. These are stories that need to be heard, that must be heard, shared, collected, so that whatever happened to these individuals did not happen in vain, but their lives will go on to improve and make things better. Um, So anyway, so uh, let's go ahead and bring on our first guest. His name is Carl Kanthak. Hey, Carl. He is. Good afternoon. Hey, Carl is, is a friend of mine from Washington state. We uh, lovingly call him our data guy. Uh, I met him several years ago uh, in Olympia. He, along with so many people in Washington state, have been working for years attempting to get scientific integrity and public health policy to protect informed consent and medical freedom to prevent, uh, to protect exemptions. Um, And what Carl, Carl, what you added to all that was this amazing in-depth data on how the numbers were being skewed and manipulated and presented to legislators in order to get them to vote in certain ways, to take away our freedoms in essence. Um, and, And I know that you worked very hard in the beginning. It took a while for people to kind of get how important what you were saying was. And I just applaud you for never giving up. <laughs> um, so, we, yeah. Um, and and you and I, I, you know, I've got such great memories with you. Uh, you and I got to spend the January 23rd Defeat the Mandates uh, March in D.C. together. That was a yes. great experience. Um, 
because of a mix-up of scheduling, you and I enjoyed one of the most amazing meals of my life at a restaurant I never would have <laughs> probably gone to. Had. That was so much fun. But anyway, um, where would you like to begin? Where would you like to educate the radio and CHD TV listeners so well, that they begin to understand what yeah. we're talking about here? So I, I guess that, uh, uh, you know, and, and again, my background on this is that I first became aware of legislation to get rid of it, you know, to to completely remove non-medical exemptions in Washington state was SB 5005 and HB, I forget the, the companion bill in 2010 or 2011. And uh, and I had just been starting to uh, work with a school board where my son was attending and the uh, the pitch was that. 35% of Washington children's were not, were not vaccinated and that it was, and that was due to exemption abuse of the exemption and that, uh, that need, they needed to eliminate the exemption. And I had just been, uh, to a briefing that showed that the actual exemption rate for the core vaccines was 3% for MMR and DTAP and the traditional ones. And then the exemption rate had jumped up for, uh, chicken pox, when they added chicken pox because it, they, they surprised parents mm -hmm. who weren't even expecting that that would be a requirement. And then, you know, you can be solidly pro vaccine and yet question the appropriateness of a chicken pox vaccine. And equivalently with the hepatitis B vaccine is that, you know, those are two infections. One is uh, generally benign. Chicken pox is generally benign and uh, hepatitis B is simply not transmissible in the school setting to the point that a known positive infected hepatitis B child is allowed unrestricted confidential uh, attendance in schools, the same as HIV, unless they're abiding risk, then that would be the only potential. But what I, and I thought, I naively thought that if I would simply inform the proponents of the bill that they're using the wrong statistic, they were using, instead of uh, the statistics of the number of Washington State K-12 students that were using an exemption, they were citing a statistic from what's called the National Immunization Survey, which was how many 19 to 35 month old toddlers have all of the vaccines in this particular series by their 35th month. And that was 65%, uh, 16 of 16, if I remember correctly. However, if you looked at each individual vaccine or series, they were over 90%. So over 90% of the kids had their first MMR, over 90% of the kids had their four DTAP. It was just that that uh, comprehensive cumulative number that allowed them to cite 65%. And, uh, and that put me on the path. Uh, and then in my own personal situation, I'm on a school board of a very small school. I'm speaking, of course, as a private person here, I'm not representing my school. But uh, we ended up on a list of high exemption rate schools with a 12.5% exemption rate of our kindergarten class. And uh, we had eight kindergartners and one of them had opted out of the chicken pox vaccine. So if I so, think it, so one child opted out of just one of all the required vaccines and correct. that made your school have a 12% exemption rate. 12.5. Yep. 12.5. <laughs> I'll never forget the time when you were presenting to a, a Senate health committee um, about hotspots. And when you started naming the places and you started saying how many children that this figure represented, right. like one, two, and the jaws just dropped open. <laughs> I 
of the well, people the drag, on the committee. Yeah. And the laughter that followed, right? But and as funny as it is, it's serious because they had no idea and laws were being passed and rights being taken away by these absurd lies Misre- and yeah, present- misrepresentations. misrepresentations. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that and that was what uh and that's what's kept me in- involved all of these years is that I, I, I'm very much a, an accountable government person, and it really irks me to see these people doing that. And so if I cast back and if I try to, you know, try to paint the picture of how we ended up here is that there's two, the two main cultural things was that for most of the 20th century, generation after generation of people were raised with the idea that you don't question the doctor, the doctor knows best. And to this day, my mom is of a generation that when I push back at all. She gets quite anxious when I question her healthcare providers about the appropriateness of any type of a care procedure or something. She -hmm. trusts me, but it still just makes her uncomfortable to have me saying, well, that's not what I read. Then the other one that came along with that is the whole vaccine mythology where, you know, this idea that vaccines saved us and that without vaccines, there would be death and destruction everywhere constantly. And that, uh, you know, we would have waves of infection crashing back and forth and that the vaccines are the only bulwark that are protecting us. And, uh, then the, the, the pharma actually achieved saturation of the pediatric market in the 90s. And that was the result specifically to that market was three things. One of them was school attendance rules. Now, people think that there's always been school attendance rules. That's false. I moved to Washington State from another state and graduated and never produced a vaccination record. Washington did not have any requirements for school attendance until 1980. And of course, at that time, it's much less robust schedule than there was. And... Uh, so in, in, in 1969, only 26 states had that. So during the 70s, there was an effort to consolidate all of the rules. And, and even the states that had them, it wasn't like everybody had to have all of them. Some of the states had simply a polio one or a, a smallpox vaccine. And then the next, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, um, and there was even when these rules were being put into place, there were no outbreak problems. We didn't have children dying in the schools. No. You know, people were healthy and, you know, they, it was, if you got chicken pox, so what? If you got measles, so what? If you were vaccinated, fine, whatever. It was like a no big deal. It was, it was a parental decision. It was between the, the parent and the child's doctor. And if you wanted to or not, there was the, the justification, um, at least in Washington state, for implementing this law that certain vaccines would be required was to increase vaccination vaccination rates, period. Just to, to use the power of the government to compel more people to get these products. That's correct. Yeah. Parents were not protesting uh, with yeah. uh, placards saying that, uh, and, and, uh, and in fact, in this kind of leapfrogs to the end part, which is what we'll need to be able to counter going forward is, that Washington fortunately has a beautiful uh, synopsis of their infectious disease incidence and mortality from 1920 through 1982. And measles mortality dropped to zero in 1968, uh, 12 years before there was school rules and and, uh, long before there was any kind of systematic universal measles uh, immunization program. So, um, and again, and that was where, you know, when this whole issue started to gin up, it's like, wait, I was going to school before there were school rules and we did mm-hmm. not have an on-campus uh, graveyard and a crematorium, you know, I mean, everybody <laughs> was fine. And, uh, and, and, you know, many, many, many years, 
the only time we went to the pediatrician was for our school checkup and uh, and there wasn't any shots involved mm-hmm. and you went and as as a boy you went and you know he t- t- checked your heart uh, you peed in a cup you turned your head to cough and then that was it you know you'd go mm-hmm. wait next year had that uncomfortable check there but <laughs> so you had the you had the school rules well then what happened after that was the 1986 national uh, national childhood vaccine injury act and uh, people need to understand that it, it's the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. It's not the National Childhood Parents I- uh, Imagining Harm to Their Children Act. So that <laughs> are, some children are harmed by vaccine or the vaccination process is memorialized in the title of the legislation. And what that did was largely and pr- pretty much in, completely indemnify the pharmaceutical companies from any liability. And then after that, uh, you had vaccines for children, which was uh, put in by in 93, 94, which then made it a requirement for the government to provide all vaccines that were on the schedule. And then shortly after that, uh, prior to that, you know, the, the rates were 60, 70, you know, there were certain people that wouldn't purchase the vaccines or their insurance wouldn't cover vaccines. So there were, you had all these different, uh, the tentacles of the octopus pulling things together. So you have the regulations and then you have the force purchased by the government. So then they maxed out the childhood schedule at that point and and started to create more and more vaccines looking at what other infections. And And started making more and more vaccines with one shot would have like, I think the highest is nine now, isn't it? Nine types of vaccines in one shot. Well, yeah, it's uh, right. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> and okay. and the, the the clinical trials for these multi-dose um, injections. They there's no control group. There's no saline control group. They mat, They look at the safety outcome of somebody getting a nine valent injection with getting nine shots of all these components, right? And. Right. And if you have the same level of adverse reaction in both groups, they say, oh, it's Comparable. just as safe as yeah. getting all these other insanity. Okay. Well, so then, so then what happened is then, so it's like, okay, then w- what that, what those conditions did is it makes vaccines the perfect pharmaceutical product because the, you know, you've never seen an ad on TV for the Merck MMR. They don't have to because every kid has to have two of them to go to school. And now Merck's plan is that every adult will get one every 10 years. You've never seen uh, with the, the the indemnity means there's no liability. You've never seen an infomercial. Were you harmed by the Merck MMR vaccine? If so, call 1-800-I-GOT-HURT. Uh, and, uh, and then because there's the government's purchasing, there's no pressure on pricing. They can set the price at whatever they want. And there is no process whereby a biologic, which is the category of drug that vaccines are, can become uh, a generic. So there's no patent expiry. So Merck has been selling the same MMR since 82. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just not possible in the other drug category. So the pharmaceutical industry is looking at this and going, my gosh, what a cash cow. We need to look at the adults. Did you notice that a couple of months ago, um, they quietly slipped in, um, I think it's GlaxoSmithKline's MMR and gave it approval in the U.S.? Something's up that they're bringing that one in. I think it has to do with the with the mumps component being completely ineffective. And, and, and then I think that the I think that the circulating strains in the U.S. are now have uh, moved away from what's contained in the vaccine. I do know that in the California, the California Department of Health 
guidance for healthcare providers is that if they're treating a measles patient, they have to wear full PPE regardless of their vaccination status or their immune measurement, uh, the mm-hmm. blood level. So that indicates, I mean, they have no faith in the product themselves. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't stop them from mandating it. No, no. And, you know, I just have to say real quick, it, everything we're seeing proves to me beyond a shadow of a doubt, we have to move away from vaccines being the only tool of choice for infectious disease, these transient infectious diseases. We have to move toward um, early treatment protocols and naturally acquired immunity, right? As your main uh, you know, just like with COVID. Finally, right. the CDC is saying, ah, you got to treat that unvaccinated the same, right? I mean, right. we re- always should have, it should have been on health, nutrient status, early treatment protocols, develop naturally acquired immunity that's very long lasting. We could have saved trillions, Carl, trillions if Fauci had gone up to the mic and said, you know, all this study, all the data that we have over the years on vitamin D, A, C, zinc, the studies I did, hey, in the 1980s on N-acetylcysteine, right? That he did, he knew that that N-acetylcysteine will shut down viral replication. He was in on the study. If he had just stood up and said that, told people, hey, and if you gargle, you know, with hydrogen peroxide, a couple drops of iodine, even Listerine for gargling, do a nasal flush. That that kills the virus <laughs> where it's growing. If he had just stood up and said that, none of this would have happened. I mean, it's just absurd to me. And when it comes to all these other infectious diseases, we have to move away from the fear model Correct. and to the understanding how the human immune system works, how you support it, how you can nutrient yourself through it with, and with safe and effective things like ivermectin. Um, and you can say ivermectin on this program. We have not been censored. You can say hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> um, it's been wonderful. Um, anyway, okay, go ahead. Well, I interrupted. Just, that's okay. But th- those are, those are salient points because that's what we're observing right now is that clearly it's not about health because if it was about health, there are other ways to do it. And, uh, you know, for example, the, the United Kingdom does not use the chicken pox vaccine that mm-hmm. they're, they're their strategy to manage this infection is to let it, let people naturally acquire it. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, there was no doctor that was concerned about catching measles from a patient because mm-hmm. they'd all had measles. I mm-hmm. think one of the reasons that there's such a hair on fire a reaction from public health when there is a measles case is that they realize that they have set up this scenario where there are huge numbers of people that are potentially uh, susceptible now. And they don't have a strategy for how, no. how to cope with it naturally. Yeah. And they don't, as soon as the pharmaceutical industry decides to target an infection with a vaccine, there's no research done on right. treatments. So right. why don't we have a, uh, a, a approved you know, out, out the gate treatment for measles for mumps? You know, they, they pretty much say there's no treatment. There's no cure. I think Excuse isn't vitamin me? isn't vitamin A the one for measles? Oh, they will do that for children. Yeah. And, and in certain countries they bring that up quite a bit, which is is good. But they used to distribute a um, vitamin A to help prevent serious measles cases. And I think some of that program unfortunately has has sure. gone away. They do admit for for that one. Um, but you know, we need because these these mass vaccination programs. Um, throughout the baby with the bathwater, they didn't look at the long term. They didn't understand about, you know, the 
if you add primary failure, secondary failure, and those who never respond to the shots anyway, you destroy lifelong immunity that used to exist. And they failed. So what we've got now, and Dr. Andrew Wakefield describes this beautifully, is they pushed your susceptibility to these infections out of childhood when it's safest to get it to, you know, the, to vulnerable babies now and vulnerable older adults. So where are the treatments that are going to be needed because of this, this shift, susceptibility shift created by vaccination programs? Where's the treatment protocols? And I don't want EUA billion dollar drugs. We really just need what we already have, right? right? The, the COVID protocols, I've been researching them carefully for polio to look at what history, what studies are showing about, and it, it it's looking pretty good that if you kind of study what the, the good FLCCC protocols for COVID, it looks like it's going to um, be able to uh, address a lot of uh, viruses. So anyway. That that would make sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and think of it this way is that, you know, the I think they isolated the measles uh, in 58 and by 62, they were pitching that we have a one dose lifetime immunity, robust, durable, (laughs) you know, when they, it's just an absurd claim, you know, when you have these short periods of time. So anyway, so so they'd they'd saturated the children's market. They said, okay, let's look at the adult market. And then when they observed the adults over which they did have a lot of control, which was healthcare, they were not complying. And especially when they had the availability for exemptions. So they knew that in order to do to duplicate the saturation model they have with the pediatric market in the adult market, that they would have to have mandates and those mandates would not be they they could not have exemptions available. And that was the underpinning for eliminating the exemptions in the youth market or the pediatric market and primarily through schools. Now, they were then in a jam because. You can't sell legislation nationally. The exemption rate is one or at that time was one or two percent with less vaccines. And even today, it's two and a quarter percent. You can't sell legislation to a politician by saying, hey, ninety seven and a half percent of the students are voluntarily complying with the whole program. That doesn't terrify anyone. So they had to they had to uh, do several different misrepresentations and frauds. One of them, as we were discussing, is. They exaggerate the exemptions and minimize the vaccination rates. So one of the ways they do that is that, uh, you know, the average politician, the average person has no idea how many injections are required and how the policy works and how measurement terminology is. So, for example, in Washington state, uh, birth through high school graduation is 25 or 26 injections in state licensed facilities. And you need an exemption to opt out of any one of those injections. And you are measured as exempt. If you have opted out of only one of those and you are 24 of 25, you still show up on the exempt statistic. That's how they, one of the ways they exaggerate that. California goes further. And if you use an exemption for one of the injections, they don't credit any of the other injections in their statistics. And Mm -hmm. so they're artificially, you know, uh, they're, they're trying to skew that. Then they also, as you just said, is that they over-exaggerate the effectiveness of the vaccines. And they so they, they don't talk about primary vaccine failure, the people that never become immune. Secondary, the people where it wears off. Or immune escape, where the, the circulating antigen shifts away from that that's contained in the, in the vaccine. And, uh, so, and then 
And that's where you end up with these ridiculous things like the claim in Washington that only 65% of kids have vaccines. And what I've been doing and what's kind of got me back up a little bit now is that you have, uh, I've been helping this group out of California that's uh, California for us and mm-hmm. their, their premise. And if every, I would encourage everyone to go to californiaforus.org and then look at their materials and uh, if you feel agree with what they're doing, sign the petition there because they're with, you know, now that they were p- kind of back from the fog of war, you know, we see just how much uh, subterfuge was used to pass this legislation and to really constrict the rights of citizens. And, you know, along the way, it, it, part of the demonization of people that weren't using vaccines. So if you look at anti-vaccine as a slur, and so you want to de- demonize, delegitimize, uh, uh, marginalize, and f- eventually criminalize those people by doing that. Mm-hmm. And so, but then what happened was as the, they're trying to get legislators to ban children from school, they're meeting with anti-vaccine parents and they realize these parents are not going to vaccinate when we change the law, but we have a constitutional requirement, uh, obligation to educate these people. So they started to look at creating parallel education systems. Well, then that panicked public health because the government providing a parallel education system for unvaccinated people, that legitimizes not being vaccinated as a choice. They can't Mm -hmm. have that. So then all of a sudden they came up with the term vaccine hesitant. So then they're telling the legislator, oh no, these people are not fully committed to being anti-vaccine. They're just hesitant. And if you take away the difficulty of making that choice, then they will go ahead and vaccinate. And you can see that language. And if you look in between what's happening. So I was contacted, uh, you know, and if we look at, you know, in, in Washington, it was the, they were citing the 19 to 35 month old toddlers and claiming that was the K-12 group. Uh, the, next I helped in Vermont and they were using, they had just added chicken pox and hep B in the same year which doubled the exemption rate uh, there from 2.5 to 5. But then in it, the, the other thing that happens is the percentage representation. So the average school in Vermont, Vermont has only 7,000 students per grade level in the entire state. Okay. Wow. In Washington's 80, 85,000. And uh, California has, for example, 500,000 kindergartners. So wow. clearly, <laughs> clearly one, one student in, in Vermont is highly overrepresented, one child with an exemption. Yes. And the, the average school there only has 28 kindergartners. So, you know, two kids and all of a sudden you've got a 6% exemption rate. So that, that was, they were playing games with those. Then they did the same thing in Oregon. They did the same thing. And then when we came up to, by the time we got to SB 277 in California. So you have the media's beating the drum that the rates are low. You've got misrepresentations about they're using the complete numbers and there's all kinds of, you know, details that uh, I'm putting together a class so that other people can do this besides myself, uh, which is uh, understanding deconstruction and countering public health messaging. Um, So then what they did was, so in addition to the rate fraud, the addition to the vaccine efficacy fraud, in addition to the exaggerating the, you know, exaggerating the danger of these infections to a, a, a well-fed child with access to healthcare, then they make these absurd linkages to outbreaks. So in the case of California, it was Disneyland. And with a little bit of perspective now, it's like, okay, there was an outbreak in Disneyland. We need to get rid of California school exemptions. 
how's there, where's that connection? And you look at all into the, into the uh, situation is that we're all of the, uh, is Disneyland part of the California health uh, education system? No. Does, uh, does, Cal does Disneyland have any vaccine rules? No. Is the majority of people at Disneyland on any given day California citizens, much less California school children? And then when you looked at the demographics of that outbreak, uh, I think only 19% uh, or something like that was actually of school age. And it was primarily adults and a high percentage of those were vaccinated. And yet that, that particular outbreak you know, was whipped up to be the reason why we had to get rid of exemptions in California schools. Yeah. And let's give the example in 2019, where you and I were, were both there in Olympia, where they were fighting, they were putting forward legislation to remove the personal exemption. There was one bill to remove personal exemption to all vaccines, and that eventually right. got sidelined. And they decided the one that they could pass was the, to remove the personal exemption to the MMR. And they were claiming, it, you know, it started off, what, just two or three cases, then five or six cases. And you kept hearing in the news that, oh, there's another case of measles and it's so highly contagious. Be careful when you're out there. And they were doing all these stories in the media with, I remember an image of a woman clinging to her baby and she was inside her house looking out the window. She was afraid to take her baby out on a walk lest she be exposed to measles, right? And just fear, fear, fear. And I was actually at the Capitol when uh, Washington State Secretary of Health, John Weisman at the time, it was like five o'clock in the afternoon and we overheard legislative offices receiving phone calls where they were being told that two babies had been exposed to measles and it's so dangerous, you have to pass this bill, you have to pass this bill, right? Come to find out all of the cases, it was only 72 altogether, we're in an isolated community of, um, you know, a cultural religious community that didn't believe in getting the MMR. This was groups of families of six to 11 children who were allowing, who are self-isolating, mind you, allowing the, all the kids to get chicken pox, probably having cousins over or something, but it was all contained within that community. Um, it wasn't out and they all had religious exemptions not right. personal exemptions. There wasn't a personal exemption being used in the lot. Lies, lies, lies. It was so infuriating. And and in, several of us at Informed Choice Washington, we were, um, after this, we had a meeting with the Secretary of Health and a couple of others in the immunization department. We had flown in Mary Holland and um, we had, I believe we had Kim Mac Rosenberg and Emily Tarsell, whose daughter was killed by the HPV vaccine. We had brought them in to, to try to get a pause on just at least the promotion of the HPV vaccine until more could be learned because we know we've got all these massive uh, trials um, going on about harm from the HPV vaccine. But anyway, after that meeting that we got, I asked the Secretary of Health, I said, please provide me the data on how many people outside of that isolated community had measles. And he said, it doesn't matter, Bernadette. I said, it does matter. That was used to remove a personal right in this state. How many? It doesn't matter, Bernadette. He refused to tell me. His refusal to tell me tells me zero. 
zero. So this, these are the lies being perpetuated by our public health officials. This wasn't Merck Correct. lying to the legislature. This was a public employee <laughs> lying to the legislature. Well, and, and that's actually the, that church, well, the, that group is in my area and mm -hmm. I, and I have had conversation and the, one of the members and they said that they, you know, they go, they travel to countries where measles is endemic, both uh, to visit relatives and they also do mission trips. And he says, I don't want my child to be, you know, on uh, some kind of rescue mission in the Philippines or visiting, you know, Central Europe to discover that their vaccine didn't work. And, and when I can very easily treat them with a case that will give them a robust, full natural immunity here at home with mm -hmm. all of the support that we can give them. So for them, this is that, that is their strategy for doing that. And it was completely contained within that community. Exactly. Now, remember also that, you know, in terms of the rate fraud, so suddenly when, when the outbreak happened, they were claiming that Clark County had only a 70%, 78% MMR rate. Mm -hmm. And which is, uh, which is absurd because the exemption rate in Clark County is only 5.3%. And I testified multiple times at the Clark County, uh, Clark County Council and then also to the Clark County Public Health and just pointed out the impossibility of that because you cannot enroll your child in school without a certificate of immunization status. And because only 5% of those students list an exemption and they have documented complete parents list the day, month, and year of MMR injections, and 94 to 95% of them list those injections. So the only way the statistic that they're, in this case, county public health officer misrepresenting to hit their governing board would be as if the parents of 14,000 or 15,000 Clark County children were falsifying the day, month, and year of never administered MMR injections. And they had and never accused anybody of falsifying the data. That was absolutely. never part of their. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and the board and, and, and this illustrates actually part of what I, uh, is that the, the difficulty that we as advocates have is that you have remembering that the doctor is always right. And most of these people are doctors. They're also public health officials. And, uh, you know, as a politician, uh, when you look at the, you, you, you're, uh, I'm an elected board officer. I'm fully reliant upon the employees of that agency that I oversee to be honest with me, to provide proper governance. So you have to think if you're a, if you're an elected official and then somebody's telling you, although we're, our vaccination rates only 78%, uh, you know, is anywhere in their head. Are they thinking, I wonder if this guy's lying to me, you know, that should not be uh, part of the, the discussion. And then, you know, and when and I started to point out the practical considerations of this, which would be is that in order for to in 2019 for the K K-12 system, 13 years to have a 78 percent would mean that every class since 2006, every incoming kindergarten class would have to have been at 78 percent year after year after year after year. You, mm -hmm. you can't have a falling rate in a school system. The rate mm -hmm. is what it is, and they can only drop in the incoming class unless you add a dose like, we're, you know, people are now starting to understand 
dose requirements and how that applies to whether or not you are vaccinated. But for practical mm -hmm. purposes, once a kindergarten class sets a base rate, it can only go up. It can only go up. You can't unvaccinate somebody. That's right. <laughs> as much as some people would like that to be possible. Yes. So I'm, and then, and then the next question is, so what happened? Uh, you know, this guy suddenly woke up and it's like, oh my God, I'm at 78%. Well, what happened to me? That does it. The, the, it simply doesn't function that way. Right. But, you know, now you're in a position where you have a, uh, you know, a, a Clark, you know, a council member has to, has their number one, this is the number one person in that department. And you have to confront them about, dude, I think you're lying to me. You know, I mean, one mm -hmm. of the, one of the, uh, one of the council council members is a judge advocate general. He was following, you know, an attorney, he's following right with me. And he says, this, this is very compelling information. I was just pointing out the practical impossibility of an only 78% MMR rate in Clark County. Mm -hmm. The other thing that would show is that if it's 78% now, it's been 78% for at least 15 years. It means the entire measurement system in the entire state is wrong. If it's possible that parents are, you know, that there's this, mm -hmm. if it's that far inaccurate uh, among all, all of the other problems. And so maybe vaccination rates aren't all they're cracked up to be if we're <laughs> able to, if we're able to be safe at these low rates. But that just shows that there's no level. I, I mean, we've seen, I'll tell you, I was on my drive to, where I'm at right now with some good internet because I don't have it at my house. I was thinking back to when we were in that hearing in Washington, D.C., oh. uh, when uh, the chairman, and it was one of the Southern centers, and he was asking, he goes, well, uh, am I correct, uh, Secretary, that in your state, an exempt student had transmitted measles to an immune compromise? And of course, I knew all about the case, and I think I if I didn't have my computer open during the hearing within two hours afterwards, I yes. had emailed our senators legislative yeah. aid and showed them, no, this, that, that case, it was a fully vaccinated adult woman who had contracted measles from another adult in a healthcare setting. This was a yes. health acquired. And right. And she was immune compromised and her doctors opted not to give her immune globulin, even though they knew she had been exposed. It was yeah, ridiculous. the whole thing. Yeah. Within two hours, you had emailed everybody. We never got any word back. I mean, nope. so so I mean, it's 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 criminal. Isn't it a felony to lie to a? Well, I've been working on this and it depends the on if they're if they're sworn in or not. And I can't recall now if they were sworn in. At we'll the, have to at go back and we watch at, yeah. to see. But I have was, yeah. I've asked, you know, I've gone because I've gone with the actual data to state secretary, uh, state attorney generals, auditors and said, do these people. How is it possible that a that a, a, an employee in a government employee can misrepresent material facts to their governing board. How is mm -hmm. this possible? You know, it's one thing if you want to promote this position or that position, but you can't fib about it. You know, mm -hmm. what if, uh, you know, imagine in uh, uh, forestry, if you had someone that is either strongly uh, conservation minded, and so they're all of their data comes from some groups that say you should never cut down another tree. And then you have another data source, you had another employee there that's completely into, you know, let's clear cut everything. Mm -hmm. And there's supposed to be some middle ground here. And there's, a, you know, you're supposed to have some actual data, the proper data. And that ties back to what happened in SB 277, which was that after the, it had gone through the health committee, it was in the in the education committee. And this and is in California. This, this is, is the law yep. in California that removed 
um, all all non-medical exemptions. Non-medical exemptions. Was it within that one or was it a later follow-up that narrowed medical exemptions so tightly they are, they're almost one. non-existent in California? SB 276. Now. Well, that, yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a harassment of the doctor bill, but mm. the, uh, but in on 277, so the bill was dead in, in, in education. And if you watch that now, again, you know, back from the emotion of the time, you can see that these senators are really conflicted. When I'm working with advocates, I try to say, you know, most people will come to the same conclusion with the same data, largely. And that you have to understand that they're being fed this low rates, low rates, danger, da, 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 da. And that's why they're coming to this decision. But you see them saying, look, this is a draconian bill. That was the exact language used by some of the that, you know, you're you're talking about taking these people out of the education system without any type of an alternative. And I just don't see the harm. That was uh, mm -hmm. Senator Block. Senator Marty Block was saying, I can't see that we can't just keep doing what we're doing. And mm -hmm. then by this time, you know, we'd been able to get into some of the offices and show them that the rates are actually, you know, well into the nineties in all of the schools. And uh, so then the, the chairman of that committee meeting said, uh, you know, Senator Penn, you, if we vote today, your bill's not leaving this committee. I'm going to, you know, you have the option. I'll give you a week for you to answer the questions from the different members of this committee. And then we'll do a vote only next week, no testimony or anything like that. So then a week later, suddenly now the bill is seven yeses to two noes. And I don't recall, there might've been some juggling of the members of the committees, but uh, the, the Senator Marty Block, he said, uh, he specifically cited, he says, now, Dr. Pan, I'm relying on you. I'm not an expert on this. And I'm relying on you that what you showed me will happen if I don't vote for this. And, uh, and so what was he shown, Carl? Well, here's the thing. I was briefing this group that I'm helping California, and, and there was people that were at both of the meetings that didn't know what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, what had happened was, is in the interim, uh, Senator Block was shown uh, a model. And if there's something we've learned from COVID is how poor models are, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was shown a model of what would happen in his county, San Diego County, if the... Uh, 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 with a certain vaccination rate. And it was like the old uh, missile command video game, which is where the things come down and so he's got this computer model, which is just these uh, uh, exploding red circles. Mm -hmm. so, and uh, uh, yeah, there's the slides there. And uh, so, uh, and it was, and it's quite dramatic. And he was told, it's clear from his statements in the, in the meeting that he was told this is an imminent, outcome if you do not vote to support SB 277. Now, the problem with that is that he, that he was being shown. Yeah, if you scroll up then two more, uh, four more or so, you'll see the map of San Diego County. And then you can, yeah, that's the start of the of the simulation. And then the next slide shows the exploded, I believe. Yeah. With okay. all of that, all of that red everywhere. So okay, for the, yeah. for the radio words, viewers. For radio yeah. Viewers. yeah so, <laughs> radio viewers, what you've got is uh, you've got uh, San Diego County, which actually is shaped a little much like Washington state. And you see these masses of red blotch where the circles are all overlapping into where, you know, you've got what looks like, uh, you know, like it's been nuclear bombed. The coast of uh, San Diego County has been nuclear bombed. And then the title of that measles in San Diego County coverage at 80%. Now, and again, when the testimony, when you watch Senator Block trying to explain you know, uh, it's clear. And then he is asking Pan to clarify, but 
it's obvious that Senator Block was not told the most important thing, which is that in order for San Diego County to be at an 80% vaccination rate, it would require that the exemption rate go instantly from 2.5% to 20% and then hold there for 15 consecutive years. Only then could you press play and have that outcome. Right, because you cannot unvaccinate somebody. The rates are what they are. And the then... rates are what they are. And, at, yeah. and actually, when, and I, and so I put together a package and I unfortunately didn't have any traction to try to educate the legislators that when you get to MMR coverage statistics, one of the problems or, or the, the, that they added the second dose. Remember, MMR was yeah. so one dose lifetime immunity, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, as soon as it was in use for about 20 years and all of the people that had natural immunity weren't in school anymore, they realized it wasn't working like they wanted it to. So then they added a second dose. Now, what that does from a measurement standpoint, it's just like with the COVID, how many people have one, how many two, how many three. So what they'll do is they'll, and you were, uh, is that they'll cite the kindergarten rates, which are uh, are low because that second MMR dose is scheduled in a three-year window between the fourth and seventh birthday. Yep. And you, and kindergarten enrolls at age five and transitional kindergarten enrolls at age four. And mm-hmm. they lump all those because they're not worried about accuracy. They're worried about making the worst number they can to scare a legislator into supporting unnecessary right. legislation. And I recall that you had actually found a documentation from one of the uh, uh private public private partnerships i think it was immunization coalition mm-hmm. where they recommended specifically only using kindergarten rates because they were uh yeah they- that was aim that was in a file oh. from the association of immunization managers which the head of every immunization department in every state belongs to and in washington state at the time it was michelle roberts she's still like co-chair something of of aim it's a collaboration of state immunization departments and the pharmaceutical industry. They're sponsored by Merck and Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline. And I've looked recently, Moderna's there, all the new companies are there as well. And they have annual conferences. And one of the slides they put up was directing immunization departments when you gather data to, to use to show legislators of the need for certain legislation show them this kindergarten data, right? That's what they were saying. Pull it from yes, a certain specifically area. because as soon as the kids are old enough, then the yep. impact the impact of exemptions is very simple. It's 100 minus the nominal value. So in the case of California, uh, it was 100 minus 2.54 and it's 90, whatever that is, 97.46. Yeah. That, that's as bad as it can get. And, and when we were testifying here in Washington, you know, when I pointed out at that point, the uh, 2.9% MMR exemption rate in, in Washington state, that means even if you could ma- wave a magic wand and get all those people to vaccinate, which is never going to happen, the most increase you can get is 2.9%. Yeah. And obviously the, the maximum downward pressure is 2.9%. Yeah. So what I'm helping the groups in California do, and I'm trying to do this with other, uh, other states is to understand how many different ways the data can be misrepresented. So in this case, and then uh, there's actually uh, Senator Block was interviewed by someone later on about uh, how, how impactful that the model was on his change in the vote. 
because mm-hmm. it, it told him, okay, well, I, I really can't. And he, because, and again, he was being told this is an imminent possibility when again, it would require that the, it would an eightfold increase in the exemption rate from two to 20 and hold there for 15 consecutive years. Yeah. Which yeah. Of course so- is an absurd claim. So there, I mean, so you've got a couple of things going on and we've only got about five minutes and I want to discuss quickly where we go from here. Okay. Because yeah, the idea is we need legislators comfortable with lower rates. That's correct. Because we know the long-term unintended consequences are far more harm than good from these products and people, more people should be exempting themselves to protect their health. Um, and so there's there's twofold thing that we've got data manipulation driving fear, and we've also got biological information pushing fear because why would an outbreak of measles freak people out in 1950? It didn't. In 1960, it didn't. It was the um, the punchline in the Brady's bunch episode, right. in the Flintstone episode, right? So we've got fear being fed to our legislators. You know, and they're being well, made- and right. And when you when you look at the Brady Bunch, is that that was I that was into the seventies, and they are they're they're not even generally aware that there is a, an injection at that time because when they talk about it, there's no yeah. shot. You know, yeah. they were they were they at that point in time the, the it wasn't even as widespread. I mean, there's this there's this idea that okay, every time a vaccine's introduced, it immediately goes to hundred percent until those darn anti-vaxxers make people worried about it. It's yeah, not that way at all. Yeah. You know, if there's if there's no requirement. I would say this is that what advocates need to be doing is understanding the rates so that they can figure out what the rates really are in their state. And then the next thing is is you need to find the data that shows that low rates are not connected with poor health. I've been helping with Connecticut and they were trying to prove to their committee that exemptions were the cause of uh, of outbreaks. So one of the one of the studies that said that there were 48 cases of measles a year that they could connect to non-medical or, or that there was 48 cases of measles. And if you eliminated all non-medical exemptions in the United States, it would reduce that 48 cases to 38 cases <laughs> at the cost of destroying the educational lives of how many, you know, children. Yeah. And because, because 80% of infection is completely unrelated to people with exemptions, it's vaccine failure. The number of people that are vaccinated yet still, still susceptible is many times the number who are intentionally exempt. Yeah. And we have got to get our elected officials to understand that you need not fear disease. You need to be properly prepared for disease. There are two choices. You can individually choose to get a vaccine product, which usually means you're going to have to get it for the rest of your life because they're, they don't last as long as natural infection and you still will need treatments or the other very wise option is, you know, proper health, early treatment protocols and acquiring broad, durable, very long lasting acquired immunity. They, that has to be elevated. It is. That's, that is the strategy of the national health uh, 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 the United Kingdom's National Health Service for the management of chickenpox is natural infection. Natural infection. And, we and, need. And, it's a great model, then, isn't it? Yeah, you could bet. You know, because they they know that when people are vaccinated, some of them it doesn't work, and mm-hmm. then you know, as compared to, and the other part that they acknowledge in that, which drives Merck crazy because of their other uh, uh, because of their shingle shot, 
is they state clearly in there that the circulation of chickenpox helps boost the seniors and they don't have to use the shingles yeah. vaccine. Well, so that's, Carl, that's a, it's a twofer. I understand and I appreciate the chance to yeah. speak today. I always run up against the clock. So if you want to hear more from the brilliant Carl Canthak, it's all K's, Carl Canthak at Substack.com, Carl Canthak at Substack.com. Look him up. I believe this is new. You're going to just begin populating, putting articles up there for people to learn from you. Yeah. I'm so grateful. You know my archive. (laughs) Yes. He's got an amazing archive. And and I'm going to start doing, you know, classes. Awesome. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you, Carl. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM, KKNW, and CHD TV. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we have got Ashley Wine. So get your tissues. And if you've got sensitive people in the room, you might advise them this might not be the show for them. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one-world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me, somebody to show me love. We need a revolution. Hello and welcome back to the second hour of an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. As a reminder, this show comes to you 
from donations only. We don't take any money from any businesses. Um, we are donation only. This is information for the people, by the people that we bring to you. So, you know, if you haven't already um, joined Informed Choice uh, Washington, we encourage you to join. You can join for free. If it's within your means to give a, a little donation, um, monthly really helps keep us on the air. We do appreciate it. Go to informedchoicewa.org. Org. Um, in the second hour, we're going to be talking about things that are kind of hard to listen to a little bit. So I just want to give you a heads up if, you know, it's, it's about somebody's experience, many people's experiences in the hospital, and some of the descriptions might be very difficult to hear. So I, I just want you aware of if you find those things difficult to listen to or somebody's in the room, just a little heads up at, um, about what's upcoming. So I want to bring on now a lovely young woman who I just recently met. Her name is Ashley Wines, and she's in my former home state of Washington up in the Bellingham area. Hi, Ashley. Hi, thank you for having me today. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. Um, so uh, you're new to all this. So just as a reminder, we are both on the radio. So just audio only listeners, but we're also streaming to video. Um, you were brought to my attention by a fellow advocate in Washington State, uh, the lovely Natalie, who I adore, who just she is rocking it. Just such devotion, such organizational skills, helping people in so many ways up in the northern part of Washington State. Um, to get organized and to try to find ways to change course for some of the really bad things that have been going on. Um, mm -hmm. She told me about you and your experience. So I am so um, grateful that you are able to speak of your experience and appreciate it. I know it must be difficult for you to do. Um, and I know that the work that you are now doing is going to be saving lives and sharing your story will save lives in the future. I, I feel if, if everybody shares what they went through and then we keep working together to find solutions, we can, I pray to God, prevent this from ever happening again. Right. So I'm just going to let you go ahead and, and kind of start with your with your journey. Do you want to begin with you and your fiance, Phil, and and um, how it all began? Yeah, that, that sounds lovely. No, and actually a lot a lot of people are talking about what I'm going to be talking about. And you'd be surprised how many of us are out there. So we're coming up on our one year mark on September 23rd last year. Phil got sick with COVID. And how old is, was Phil? So Phil was 32 years old. He had no underlying health conditions, so no comorbidities. He was not on any medications. He actually hated taking Tylenol and ibuprofen. He hated, he hated it. So he got sick with COVID. Everything was normal. You know, my whole family had COVID a couple months prior. So his symptoms were similar to everyone's. Uh, may I, sorry to interrupt, but may I ask if he was um, vaccinated? Did he get any of the shots? No, he, he was not unvaccinated. We decided that it wasn't for us. Mm -hmm. We had saw a couple of family members get injured from it. 
Um, my family already had COVID right before the vaccine came out. So it just didn't make sense for us. We said, mm-hmm. no, it, it's okay. We're going to wait. It's okay. So no, he, he wasn't vaccinated. And that's a lot of where our discrimination came to in the hospital. Okay. Thursday morning, he woke up. He looked really good. It was his first time making breakfast in a week for himself. He looked really, really good. Um, as Thursday progressed, his oxygen started getting a little bit low. I was Did you just, have a oximeter? Were you taking his, you got one of those little devices to monitor? Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I was actually just about to read, ready to graduate nursing school. And so watching him the whole entire time, his breathing looked good. His oxygen was good. Everything was going, you know, normal, I'd say, mm-hmm. for, for previous experiences of what my family experienced. Towards the afternoon, his mom brought over a pulse ox. We checked it, and it was at 85, and he was walking around. No distress, no hyperventilating, no nothing. I was concerned. My family's in healthcare. I was concerned at the 85. I instantly panicked when I saw it. We all kind of looked at each other, and we knew that we needed to go to the hospital. And can look. I can I ask you, Ashley, in your nurse in your nurse um, in your schooling, mm-hmm. were you ever presented with scenarios where somebody had low oxygen levels, but they seemed perfectly fine? Yeah, we were actually presented with that, and we talked about how much oxygen to give a patient depending on their respiratory status, if they were okay. in distress or not distress. Okay. But it, it still alarmed you that he seemed perfectly fine and was not in distress. But the the numbers you had the been numbers. educated to learn were scary. Yeah, the numbers we were educated, depending on the hospital system, it was usually anything below like a 92 or 93. They should go on supplemental oxygen. Okay. The look that all three of us gave each other, we'd heard rumors, you know, we'd heard conspiracy theories. We're like, oh, this isn't true, you know. That's what a lot of us think until we live through it. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil, myself, and his mom, all three looked at each other and we said, okay, you know, we're, we're going to go to the hospital. Let's get some supplemental oxygen. Let's get you checked out, get you some IV fluids. And after that, we're going to go home. But looking back at that moment, we were all scared to go to the hospital for a very, very good reason. Mm-hmm. You don't want to believe the rumors. You don't want to believe the stories. You want to have trust in your health care. You, you want to trust going to the hospital. Mm-hmm. But we were all scared for a very good reason. Thursday evening, I drove him to the hospital. I dropped him off. And I couldn't go inside the hospital, of course. So he walked himself into the hospital. He walked himself in the hospital. A couple hours later, we get a phone call from Phil and his doctor saying they're going to go ahead and admit him for COVID pneumonia. They offered to start him on remdesivir and dexamethasone, including supplemental oxygen, IV fluids, and some vitamins. Instantly, we asked for ivermectin, hydrochloroquine. We knew we'd be denied, but we wanted to make sure that it was on the record that we did ask. We did get denied right away. We were told, nope, absolutely not. This hospital does not follow this. Mm-hmm. We had heard rumors about remdesivir. I had looked into some of the studies about remdesivir. I knew that depending on what side you fell on for remdesivir, you could either do very well or you could do very, very poorly. We all decided, nope, to remdesivir. 
Nope, let's not, let's not do it. It's not worth it. Instantly, the doctor told us Phil's not going to have a good outcome unless he takes remdesivir. We still said, no, it's okay. Let's wait 24 hours on the steroid and see how he does. Mm-hmm. Friday morning comes. Phil's doing good. He's eating. He's, he's feeling the best he's felt in the whole entire week after being sick. He's feeling amazing. I didn't know until later on the timeline that they were actually planning on discharging him to go home that day. Oh. During discharge, this is this is the part that we want answers for. Mm-hmm. There's no answers in the medical records and no one can answer us. I can only tell you what it looks like. During discharge, they educated Phil. And during the education, they asked him, do you want to get vaccinated? Phil said, no. Why, why would he get vaccinated if he's already getting it naturally? Mm-hmm. They specifically marked in his medical records that patient does not intend to vaccinate. They decided to keep him for one more night for observation purposes. During the night, he was administered morphine, excessive doses of supplemental oxygen. And then next morning, he was sent to ICU labeled imminent death. Um, I'm just, what, (laughs) you know, I'm sorry. It's okay. I just, I'll say it. He, he was so well and feeling so good. They Mm -hmm. were going through pre-discharge procedure, Mm -hmm. which now includes education, I'm doing in air quotes here, Mm -hmm. about vaccination. He says, no, he doesn't intend to. And then there's a pause put on the discharge. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, he's given morphine in the night. What, What do, did you get an explanation about why that was administered? No, it's not labeled in the medical records. And in the medical records that evening, you didn't get I, a chance. I, I actually did. Um, that okay. that evening, before before that happened, that evening, because we were talking about him staying one more night. Because that that was, that was the other thing is, you know, Phil Phil didn't want to be at the hospital. None of us want to be at the hospital. He was so ready to come home. Mm-hmm. So that Friday evening, I talked to him for maybe two hours on the phone, telling him, you know, you're doing a good job. You know, you'll come home tomorrow. Worst case scenario, maybe Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you talked to him, did he say he was in any pain or anything? No pain, no distress. He talked to me for, I, I want to say close to two hours. We talked to each other for a long time that night because he was a little bit nervous. So we just, we just chatted and I wanted to get him down on the supplemental oxygen because I was noticing during the day. I kept checking in on him, where his levels were, where his distress were, where was his respiration rate. And I was noticing throughout the day, he kept going higher and higher in oxygen. And I kept questioning it. And it just, and nursing student about to graduate, you really understood that this doesn't seem right. What the increase is based on what you knew about his condition. Yeah, something yeah. didn't something didn't seem right. I actually, my grandma is a retired nurse. She was a nurse for fifty years. So I called her. Um, my mom is 
mom works in administration side by side with nurses. So she's very familiar with this. So I had her get involved. I had lots of different people look at this and everyone saw the same thing I did because I'm a student. I wanted just to double check. Am I seeing this correctly? I don't want to misunderstand this. Can you make sure we're on the same page here? And don't, isn't it required to have in the charts the in when you prescribe something you have to put the indication you have to put the reason you're giving it what did the chart say was the reason for giving the morphine for comfort comfort but yeah, no, but yeah he was in no pain for comfort okay so they gave him that in the night increasing levels of oxygen they gave him morphine for comfort and then the very next day he sent to icu mm-hmm and they didn't expect him to live? No, the the charts for when he's sent to ICU, it, in quotations, says imminent, risk of imminent death. Okay. That was his now new diagnosis. Okay. And so then what happened? That was Saturday morning. Once he got to ICU, the nurse called me, letting me know he's in ICU. They got him comfortable. He's stable. Everything's looking really good. Doctors and talking to him about the new care, but they're sounding like all the cares are going to stay the same. Okay. At this point in time, I, my whole family's kind of wondering what's going on, but we're, we're, we're raised to trust our doctors or we trust our nurses. We trust what the healthcare professionals say. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until a couple of days later on Tuesday that I called to ask the nurse about a magic cup. A magic cup is a little protein cup that's got like 2,000 calories in it. You see it a lot in hospice. Phil was telling me that he wasn't eating a lot. He wasn't, he couldn't taste. He didn't really have a big appetite. So I called the nurse to talk about that. Mm-hmm. When I called the nurse, I was completely ripped into My mom was actually with me. We were in the car together and I was absolutely speechless. She's telling me that Phil is unvaccinated and because he's unvaccinated, he's going to die. He's maxed out on all of his cares. He's going to be on a ventilator and that they're not going to give him a magic cup. I was completely thrown off guard. I hadn't, I was not prepared for that. I even looked at my mom like, what did this just really happen? I did What just happened? You know, and it says right on the EUA that it is your choice whether or not you get this product Mm -hmm. and your level of care will not be changed if you opt not to get this. That's right in the federal emergency use authorization for the product. It's so immoral, unethical to blame somebody, especially when we know that these vaccines don't prevent infection. transmission, hospitalization, or death. That's just evil. Just the level. I'm sorry. I I shouldn't comment so much in here. Um, Okay. Um, Wow. So they're not willing to give him nutrients. They're not willing to do everything that they can to help him get through this. So after that, apparently he's maxed out on all of his cares and he's at risk of dying. So instantly, obviously, we use all of our resources to figure, okay, what can we do next? We contacted a nurse that's a family friend and she said, oh, well, he qualifies for the monoclonal antibodies. Did he ever get those? He's on day 10. Today's his last day that he would qualify. So did he get those? 
sure enough, I, I called the I called the not so nice nurse back, <laughs> and we asked her, did he get the antibodies? No, he doesn't qualify for those. We're not giving those to him. But he does under Washington State. He qualifies for those. Today mm -hmm. is his last day of qualifying for these. Mm -hmm. No, they're not going to give it to him. Mm. And that was into that. After that, mm. we actually had to drive to the hospital to talk to a, a nurse lead of, okay, this is the last day he's going to qualify for this. The hospital does have it. It's on the state's website. Please give it to him. This is the last day he qualifies for it. Please give it to him. Again, we were denied. At this point, we requested to see, because I'm on his HIPAA release. So it was my mother. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing we did when he got into the hospital. We wanted to see and be able to talk to people. Uh, we requested his medical records be sent to us so we could understand what's going on. You know, can you please send them to us, fax it to us? Please, we want to know what's going on. Nurse said, it's going to be too time consuming. She can't do that for us. Nurse lead said, oh, we, we can't actually do that for you. I'm sorry. But if you have access to his online portal, you can see a good chunk of his cares there. Um, so the kind of interesting thing is Phil... Uh, Phil, I was with him for just over seven years. I had known him for a little over 10 years. During that time, he had only been to the doctor once. Mm -hmm. Once. Mm -hmm. So when I said a healthcare portal, I was like, he probably doesn't have that. I, But sure, let's, let's try. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, he did. He had a healthcare portal set up that I was able to go in and look at it once he gave me his passwords. Because Phil was notorious. He always used the same passwords. So... <laughs> <laughs> but no he he gave me his password we we got right in once I got into the portal I saw everything I just described to you mm -hmm. and this most scariest thing I saw was that shortly after he got to ICU they started giving him Persidex which is a sedative and they gave him one dose of remdesivir Ag against his express wishes or had they twisted his arm and tried to, and claimed they got permission? I'm pretty sure they twisted his arm yeah. because it's very, once I, once all this happened and after he passed mm -hmm. and I got the full records, the portals, maybe 10%. It was very clearly documented over and over and over. He said, no. We're, we, we're hearing a lot of stories and I'm, I'm thinking of Scott Shera with his beautiful daughter, Grace, um, the use of sedatives mm -hmm. in these protocols. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, it's okay. We, we thought the protocol, you know, we were always sat in the middle. Me and Phil always sat in the middle. We figured there's probably truth and lies on both sides. So let's just sit in the middle and, you know, we'll, we'll weigh everything out. Let's just sit in the middle, kind of see what's happening because we don't know where to go, what to believe. We're just in this crazy world nowadays. Mm -hmm. So we truly believed you took remdesivir, you either did good or you did not do good and you went into organ failure. Mm -hmm. We thought that was what the protocol was. We were very much wrong. That is only one part of the protocol. Mm. We weren't prepared for everything else. Mm -hmm. So once I saw, so in his medical charts, the doctor actually noted that Phil had liver failure due to remdesivir. So they were going to go ahead and stop it after one dose. One dose put him into liver failure. Mm -hmm. He had uh, he had 
had been given morphine and then the other sedative mm -hmm. and then remdesivir mm -hmm. and then liver failure. That's very fast. Yeah. After. And then, so as soon as I saw that, of course, I instantly panicked. But I, I thought it was the kidneys that remdesivir it, usually it does. Hit. It does. Mm. It does affect the kidneys. But when you're on remdesivir, they actually have to check your liver enzymes every day because of what it can do to your liver as well. Okay. So when I saw that, I instantly called Phil. I was like, okay, did you take, did you take remdesivir? I need to know because if you did not take this, you did not consent to this, then we have got a serious issue on our hands. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't say much besides, yes, I, I did. I did take it, but we're not going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. He probably didn't feel good after, uh, you know, probably didn't feel good after that. Mm -hmm. um, he took it. I want to say it was on Monday. And he actually started to kind of rebound a little bit after the hit. So you can watch on lab work, his liver enzymes being normal. He took remdesivir, they shot through the roof. Mm -hmm. Within about 24 or 48 hours after he took remdesivir, the enzymes started going back down. Okay. We talked to the doctor about it. Doctor, of course, just lectured us. The... And the next day, Wednesday, I saw on the portal that his liver was looking better, looking much better. His inflammation was going down, and I saw that his white blood cells were going up, so he probably had some kind of infection going on. So I, t I texted him all that and told him, okay, it's looking good. Later on in the day, I saw the doctor make a note that they were talking about intubating Phil. Instantly, I called his mom. I said, okay, we need to go down to the courthouse. Let's get our, let's get the POA set up. I don't know if you guys have one set up, but let's just get one set up just in case. I don't know what's going on. I don't think Phil's going to say yes to it, but still nonetheless, let's make sure we can protect him if he can't speak for himself because we just watched what just happened to him. They can't give him that drug anymore. We need to protect him. Went down to the courthouse, talked to everyone down there, Actually, in the Washington state, because of COVID, you don't need a notary. You, they they stamp the paper there for you. The person just needs to sign and date it, and then off it goes. You don't mm -hmm. need to have a notary for COVID restrictions right now. Mm -hmm. Went to the hospital. I dropped off a copy for myself, and I dropped off a copy for his mom, and I had them sent to Phil's room. About two hours later... I get the phone call for Phil telling me that they're going to intubate him. At that point in time, my mom's standing next to me, and I instantly was, wait, what do you mean they're going to intubate you? Your, your oxygen's looking better. Your blood gases are looking better. While things are looking better, the only thing that's negative is you are starting to develop some kind of infection. Your white blood cells are going up all of a sudden. Uh, at that point, the nurse took the phone out of Phil's hands, yelled at me. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not at the bedside. And how do I have this information? <laughs> wow. And I, all I, and you know, and before she took it, all, all I heard Phil say was, what do you mean? So Phil had no idea that he was starting to improve. Wow. At that point in time, I asked for Phil to have a second opinion. Mm -hmm. In Washington State, you're entitled to a second opinion. This is a very big decision. 
please get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. The nurse told me, yes, he's entitled to that, but we don't have time. We can't stop the process. <sighs> I asked for the P make sure the POAs are signed. I, I kind of hear a little bit of fill in the background. So I just said, you know, if this is what we're going to do, if this is what you need to do to come home, then let's get the POA signed so that way your mom can speak for you and I can speak for you so no one can make a decision without each other. Then she told me that he was there need a notary. They don't have time for a notary. I told her what the Washington State said and I, I wrote off the codes for her. She said that she didn't know what the laws were and they just simply don't have enough time. At that point in time, I got hung up on. After I got hung up on, I sat for about 60 seconds in shock of what just happened. And I called Phil back. He told me it was just going to be for a couple days to let his lungs rest and he'll, he'll, he'll be okay. So at that point in time, I just told him, I love you. And I, I'll see you in a couple days. And then I got hung up on again. Wow. After, after he passed, we got his cell phone. And we... So you, you jumped ahead a little bit. Yeah. Or do you, is it, are you telling us part of this story mm -hmm. when you say, okay, so go ahead then. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. No, uh, so the nurse that hung up on me twice and yelled at me, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. after we got his cell phone back after he passed, we were mm -hmm. looking for pictures for his celebration of life. And we discovered that there was pictures taken of Phil before his phone was turned off. Pictures of him that he yes, took selfies. Bed. No, no. You can see the whole hospital bed. You can see him surrounded with people right before they were going to intubate him. They used his phone to take pictures of him. And I can't say for sure it's that nurse. I can't say positively, yes, it's that nurse. But I can tell you that nurse hung up on me twice and took the phone out of his hands. That was the last person that had Bill's phone in her hands. Hmm. I, I'm just not, you know, my brain's trying to figure out. Yeah. A purpose what what whoever took the the photos what was their reasoning for doing so on his phone like it's almost like leaving evidence uh, there there are more people coming forward that are saying that other that their loved one was also taking pictures of while they were either on the vent or in the hospital room and some people are saying oh it's, it's whistleblowers showing you evidence I don't believe that was our case. I think that was just pure cruelty. I think it was just to torment us. I, I don't know, but I can tell you that the pictures were not blurry. They were crystal clear. Were they sent anywhere? No. Or they just they mean on the phone? They weren't texted or forwarded or anything? Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine the moment when you saw those photos. Um, it was very surreal. A lot of this was very surreal. We just kind of felt like we were in an alternative universe that this mm -hmm. is, this is not really happening. We, I was like, I must've gotten a serious car accident. 
and I am hallucinating. Like this is this is not happening. This is not happening in America. This is absolutely not happening in my small little town. This is this is not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so you say goodbye, you tell him you mm-hmm. love him. Then you tell more about the intubation than that happened to him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we found out also in his medical records something must have happened because once they intubated Phil, Phil was intubated without any anesthesia, so he was not put under when they intubated him. And he tried pulling the tubes out, so they decided to restrain him. I, I think. I, why would they not give him anesthesia? I thought that was standard operating procedure to for any intubation. That's what I was taught. That's what I was learned uh, after I got the phone call because Pam, his mother, got the phone call too. We instantly got to the same house of you know it's it's going to be okay. They're going to put him under. He's, he's going to be like in a surgery state. He's going to have no idea what's happening for these next couple of days. He's not going to know a single thing because that's, that's what I knew. I knew that you were put under because most people don't even, you know, people go on ventilators all the time and come off ventilators prior to COVID. I think I want to say the statistics for coming out of an ICU were like 90%. Now with COVID it's what 10% maybe come out. Mm-hmm. I just, I, that's something that I'm sure haunts everybody. The idea, I mean, it's, it's the stuff of nightmares to be intubated fully awake. Mm-hmm. I'm so I, sorry. I, you know, we just didn't know it. It took my head to wrap, wrap around a long time. Cause in the notes, it specifically says that they ordered restraints because it was for his own safety. In order to order restraints, you have to have someone watching you, someone checking on you to make sure you're okay. And there has to be a liable reason for it. Mm -hmm. Phil was pulling out his tubes. So for me, prior to COVID, if someone's pulling out their tubes, that means no. That means no, don't do it. And it also means if, if they had actually said do it, that they're not sedated and it's painful and terrifying. And so he's not in the proper medical state to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm sorry. I, Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of this, a lot of this is mind, absolutely mind boggling. I just, yeah. A lot of us sat in shock for about six months. So like, this is, this is not real. Um, once we got the medical records, there are a little over 3000 pages and I read through every single page and I was like, no, this is, this is more real than any of us could imagine. And they documented every single step they did. Okay. So time is passing mm-hmm. and Time's you're getting passed. reports. Mm-hmm. Time's passed uh, later on the evening. Um, I saw on his chart that they, that they put him under with fentanyl. I talked to my, I know a little bit about sedation for anesthesia. So I, I talked to my grandma. She's like, oh, fentanyl is really good. It's easy to come on and off of. Um, he might be able to hear you, so maybe you should give a give him a call. Maybe he can hear your voice in like a dream state. I decided to call the hospital to check on Phil, see how things went, and that's when I learned I was officially not allowed to call the hospital. I have been banned from the hospital because I insulted their nurses. I'm not allowed to call or talk to anyone. I instantly called Pam. You know what's going on? I'm on a HIPAA release. Do you know what's going on? 
She had no idea, so she called. They told her the same thing, and they gave her a password to say to get her to be uh, transferred from the main floor up to the ICU floor. Hmm. Would and they wouldn't let her. Um, they did they tell her she was banned as well? No. no. But she got the password, which allowed her to be get the phone call upstairs. Okay. Yep. And then and then at that point in time, we discovered that she, the POA was signed for her, um, but I but my POA paperwork was never opened. Okay. So they let him let him sign it for his mom, but they even opened and gave him the one from me. So at that point in time, she she spoke for him as much as she could for the next two weeks while he was on the vent. I practically lived at her house. We were hip to hip together because we're going to do this together. We we have no idea what we're up against. Um, during that 14 days, uh, a really a lot happened in that 14 days. Mm-hmm. Of course, the next morning they told us um, to prepare for the worst. He's most likely going to pass. He has his liver failure. His kidneys are now officially failed. He's got to start dialysis. He's got an infection that we're having a hard time finding, and he is in shock. Septic shock? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, septic shock. And then, so Pam, being sweet as she was, she was actually able to go in and see for a little bit. So they finally let her in to go see him. She said that he looked he looked comfortable. Everything everything looked good. She was allowed in. Well, actually, she was invited back for I think three or four days in a row to see him, until she ran across a nurse that did not did not like me. She must have been in the room when I had the phone call with Phil. Because at that point, then she was kicked out of the hospital. Um, during that fourteen days they discovered that the intubation that they did for Phil when they did the vent was not sterile, that they gave him MRSA. And so the MRSA is now in his, in his ET tube. And then it's also spread into his lungs. He's got other infections. Um, They discovered he had an ear infection and a sinus infection, which they refused to treat. They said they will not treat it because it's not a concern. Even though his white blood cell continuously inclining, showing that obviously MRSA is not the only infection he has. He's got something else because your antibiotics are not working. Mm-hmm. His dialysis machine went off for three hours, which set him back very, very much. His kidneys never did recover after that dialysis machine was offline. It, it was offline for three hours. What was their notation? Did it break? Was it often nobody noticed? No one noticed, I don't think. They never notated anything besides that it was offline for for three hours. I I know those machines. I've been I've been in a hospital, I did my clinicals there. It's not quiet machine by any means. It's a loud machine. So why was no one in there with him for three hours not to hear that machine going off? It's a continuous machine. He had the he had the machine that continuously ran. It wasn't intermittent. And alarms go off, don't don't they? At the in the room and at oh, the yeah. nurse's station. I've been in enough relatives in hospital situations that the alarms drive you crazy. And they do ignore <laughs> them. Even pre-COVID, you had alarm fatigue. 
where there were times with our loved ones. It's like if I hadn't been there, I don't know what would have happened. But yeah. 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 No, they were, yeah, they refused to treat his um, his sinus and his ear infection. Looking back on everything, you know, a typical medication to treat that would be like erythromycin. And our governor said that we cannot give erythromycin to COVID patients because it's not part of the NIH protocol. So what's really infuriating, well, everything's infuriating because you mm-hmm. told me that the other day. These... <laughs> If somebody has both COVID and some other infection, the COVID protocol, you to ignore, I mean, (laughs) what if he had got his leg caught up and he was bleeding all over the place? Well, it's not in the COVID protocol to sew up the cut either, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's a completely separate issue. Of course, they have to treat it. Yeah. Yeah, um, why? I, I I don't I don't know. It was it was the most bizarre thing because I remember when when uh, we got the phone call, they're like, oh yeah, and we talked to the doctor later on the afternoon after we got the the CT scan reports. The CT scan itself about killed him. He made it through that, and so then we figure out um, that he's got the sinus and ear infection. We're like, oh good, that's gonna get his blood cell count down. It's probably why. We can't get his blood cell count under control. So what kind of medications are we going to start? We're going to start like erythromycin. We're going to start Zosin. What, you know, what, what are we going to start? Um, oh, that's, that's not a concern right now. It's, it's pretty mild. We're, we're not going to, we're not going to treat it. All of us are like, oh, okay. That's, that's strange, but hmm. yeah, all of us kind of scratched our head. We didn't understand it. It wasn't until after all this happened and we had talked to attorneys that all of it clicked and all of it made sense. Okay. During so, that time. Oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say during, during that time, um, we also noticed that he was losing weight at a very rapid rate. We talked to the doctor about it. The doctor was aware. He told us that Bill was a critical patient and critical patients get critical diets. We needed to talk to the nutritionist. The nutritionist also told us that they were aware of Phil's rapid weight loss, but it wasn't a concern to them at this time. They were only giving Phil roughly right around 1,300 calories every couple days. They were always turning it off because something happened. So in that 1,300 calories every couple of days. Every couple of days, it was supposed to be daily, but they go, oh, the dialysis, like in their chart notes, they would say, oh, the dialysis machine was going or Oh, there was nurses in the room or there was always some kind of excuse of why they stopped it. Um, so during that, during that time, Phil had lost just shy of 86 pounds wow. at the hospital. Now, when we had talked to the doctor, it was like at 62 pounds and the doctor even acknowledged that. He was aware of the rapid weight loss and it, it wasn't a concern to him. It wasn't a concern. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Phil, yeah, it, 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 we, his, he, he gave it the fight of his life for 14 days. Mm-hmm. He absolutely gave it the fight of his life for 14 days. One of the, one of the kind of the big things that happened to us that I never even knew about 
was one of the nights I checked his, I checked his portal because I was checking his, his oxygen levels, seeing how good it was. Like, are we, are we getting close to getting off the ventilator? Because maybe if we can get you off the ventilator, then we can find this infection, this random infection that they can't find. And they don't know why you're going into septic shock. They tell us they can't find this infection. So maybe if you can get off the and they can check it because I have a feeling you have regular pneumonia but they won't treat it. Mm-hmm. One of the nights I checked it, his blood oxygen gas was at 196. I had I looked at it. I thought maybe it was an, maybe it was a mistyping. I didn't know you could go above 100. It 196? Yeah, that's that's what I said too. I was very confused. I thought it was a typo. I thought 100% was I mean, I don't, I'm not a nurse or anything, but you know, you always hear that it's low if it's below 90, but what's Mm -hmm. this with over a hundred? Yes. I, I actually thought it was a typo. It was right before I went to bed. I saw it. I was like, that's a typo. So maybe it's 96, 96 Mm -hmm. sounds right. So that's good. That's good. He's, he's doing better. You know, oxygen requirements are going down. His levels are going up. Okay. That looks good. I woke up the next morning. It's at 184. I'm like, wait. I don't understand what, what is this? And so I have a couple friends that work um, with surgeons, they're, they're surge techs. And so I reach out to them and have them talk to the surgeons of what is this? I have no idea what this is. I didn't even know this was physically possible. What is this? Um, what it was is they gave him a drug. that was a vasodilator that helps him absorb more oxygen. Hmm. They described it to me as when you absorb more oxygen, typically it's before like a procedure, but actually long-term effects of it can collapse your alveoli inside your lungs, which would overall decrease your breathing. But the number one side effect of the drug that they were giving him was heart failure. Wow. The... That morning after I discovered that, I instantly called because I can't talk to the hospital. I instantly got in touch with Pam. I was like, we've got to get him out of this hospital. He's got a raging infection. They apparently can't find it, but they won't try any other antibiotics. They won't treat his ear infection or sinus infection. So can we just get him out of this hospital, please? And that's the day we spent all day long on the phone. We talked to the respiratory therapist because she's in charge of the vent. She denied the facts of online that they were inaccurate and it was safe there's nothing to worry about then we talked later on that day to apparently the doctor that ordered it the doctor actually apologized to us that that was actually very dangerous and that it was his it was a misunderstanding and he didn't catch it and he was sorry there's just like almost no i mean i guess it's good he apologized but it was too late. The damage was done. You add all these things together. Now, I um, I see that we're getting down to like the, the, the last like 11, 12 minutes mm-hmm. of the show. I can't believe how fast this has gone. And I, I want to give you time to talk about the great organization that you work yes. with. So um, we, you lost Phil. He, yeah, he I, passed. I lost Phil towards the end after that. We we actually found an attorney to help fight for us. 
Mm-hmm. The attorney told us, don't let's not even request ivermectin or hydrochloroquine because of our governor. It's not worth our time. We need to get him out of the hospital. She told us that once she steps in and starts requesting antibiotics from an attorney standpoint, things will move fast. We did not understand what she meant by that. Once we requested the new antibiotics, we were yanked around for that 24 hours after we requested it. And he died shortly after. So that's what they mean. The hospital just intends to avoid. Mm -hmm. The number one cause of death on his death certificate was what we were fighting for. His number one cause of death was septic shock from an unknown bacteria. Wow. Because he had COVID, is the hospital protected for their actions under the PREP Act? Uh, Something I actually learned about once once I joined the foundation that I'm with is that underneath the PREP Act and the CARES Act, all hospitals are completely protected COVID and non-COVID. Of course, they wanted their money, so they did put COVID as a death as well. So, no, after, after all this, we were just in massive shock. We, we really didn't know what, what what to believe, what what not to believe. We're just in massive shock. Yeah. I am the researcher of the family, so I just dove down. I was trying to figure out if I was crazy or not. I was like, this cannot be happening. This is so surreal. Yeah. I, I this cannot be happening. So I, I, I dove in headfirst. I found lots of different organizations. I found different support groups that had people that had experienced what I had experienced upon Mm -hmm. one of them. It's kind of actually where I landed. So I landed with the former feds group freedom foundation. They are a foundation that are taking this on head first. They're actually the ones leading the way for all this to come to a stop Their Their president is Peter McCullough. The wonderful Dr. McCullough. Love him. Yes. He was one of our favorites to watch. And so now actually having him as a president on the board is absolutely phenomenal. We have our, we have our family, which is Brad Geyer and our media director is Carolyn Blankman. She does a lot of different things all over the place. She's on lots of different interviews on these massive platforms talking about this. And, and it, um, are you talking about the former feds or are you talking about the COVID-19 humanity oh. memory project? Which one? Yes, the, the former feds group, and actually this is what they created, is what we're looking at here. Okay. This is one of their many projects that they're working on, and that's what I'm helping them work on as well. It's the COVID-19 Humanity Betrayal Memory Project. In here, you will see hundreds of stories, of testimonies, of people with the same story as mine. I actually help do interviews and it is heartbreaking and saddening to know what's going to happen to their loved one before the interview even starts. It's like a script. That's the best way to describe it. It's like a script. Now, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say from a couple of interviews that I've done and the things that I've read, it seems to be somebody's admitted. They seem to be doing better than they are administered some form of a sedative drug like morphine or something they are suddenly stats go down 
they get restrained, they get more sedatives, you know, it goes from there. It's, mm-hmm. that's the pattern I've seen. Is that similar to what you're seeing yeah. with all these others? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a pattern. It's insane. And that's partially why they're doing the memory project is because we want to, we want to bring memory of what happened to our loved ones. Mm-hmm. This is something that will be written down in history books. It's and the reason why it's called the betrayal project is because humanity has been utterly betrayed by our government. To get to this website, you can, and there'll be links at informedchoicewa.org uh, and in our newsletter next week, we'll have a link there as well. But it's the letter C H B M P dot org. C H B M P dot org. And I'm pulling up right now, um, I've got on the page of cases. And as I'm scrolling through, you know, you can see the files. And as I get to the bottom, it just loads more and it loads mm-hmm. more. How many cases have you taken? Has this organization now taken in? Well, that's that's actually a really good question. Um, we were recently featured in the Epic Times article. And since then, we have just taken off. We are actually on track to have 10,000 cases documented by the end of 23. And I see there's mostly deaths. There's also people that were severely harmed mm-hmm. um, in the hospital. And there are some um, some vaccine injuries and deaths in mm-hmm. here as well as hospital protocol. Yeah, it's called the COVID Betrayal Project because it covers COVID as a whole. We have been betrayed okay. on both sides. We have been betrayed as vaccinated versus unvaccinated. There are vaccine injuries out there and vaccine deaths out there. We're very aware of it. But also there are countless people that did not know about remdesivir. They did not know about the sedatives. They did not know about one of the other um, emergency use drugs, Barisid and Nib. Mm-hmm. They did not know about it. Now, are you familiar with Avery the Priest who has uncovered a lot of the federal funding um, going to hospitals to incentivize um, these protocols, the high amount of pay they get for sticking to the protocol. It used to be that there were sedatives on the protocol that they could be used, but they recently updated the protocols and those were removed. I need to bring AJ back on so we can look at it, but they have documented and archived the original protocols. And I'm wondering if they're seeing that so many people are now aware how their loved one, how that that whole um, process of, their loved one's demise began with the misadministration mm-hmm. of um, a sedative um, that they've now removed it. But we, we've got the archived evidence that it was there, it was incentivized, it was paid for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every, everyone focuses on remdesivir, remdesivir. That is one part of the protocol. And that's partially why, as a family, we decided to part with the foundation. We decided to join these foundations and that can actually help spread awareness and that's what we do is we we spread awareness that yes from this is one of the pieces but there is so much other things that happen inside that hospital yeah 
Um, and I see on the website that if if an individual wants to volunteer to be part of this team to help with the huge amount of work of intaking stories, that they can volunteer, correct? They can volunteer. So we have a citizen task force. The citizen task force, I want to say we have maybe like 150 people in the task force right now. And that's as of recently. This was a grass-grown foundation. It was only four people at first. And it is growing at a rapid rate because people are starting to discover it. They're learning that there are attorneys out there that are willing to take on these COVID cases and speak up for our loved ones. There is a whole community out here of people that understand and they're willing to help you fight. But of course, we still need help. We, we can't do this alone. We are up against a huge battle in front of us. So as many task force members as we possibly can, can get, that's amazing. There's yeah. different. There's different committees. Not everyone can sit through interviews. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hear our music. Oh. So our time is up. Let me stop sharing here. Um, Ashley Wines, thank you so much for sharing your difficult journey. Thank you for your your work to prevent this ever happening again. I, My prayers are with you and your family and with Phil's family. So. I, maybe we'll have you on again. You've been listening to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. Everybody have a blessed, happy, healthy weekend. Go hug a loved one. Take care. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy, but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Beatry, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. 
high above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.